welcome to our last uh, episode of KBCast during KB uh, during KB five. Hey, Sean, how are you doing? Good, good. We uh, we it's a little sad to end the fellowship, but we um, I guess technically have a couple more days because the KB showcase right. is on Tuesday. Today we have a pretty interesting guest, Michelle Huang, who's going to talk about uh, her project Akia Dao as well as some of the other stuff she's been doing at Kernel. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll start with our weekly rundown. This week, uh, definitely the showcase is probably the most important thing for more, for many people. Uh, I did uh, went to the showcase uh, session on Friday. It's a lot of cool projects out there. It's kind of hard to pick, uh, you know, which one you like the most because a lot of those are cool. So yeah, we I have a, a top three like a kind of interesting project out here. Uh, and so my my favorite probably top three is just uh, Eden Dao, Render Pub, and Research Rabbit. Uh, the Eden Dao that's the uh, one from uh, from Citrus is a really good humor on all his uh, on his talk, <laughs> talking about how to reframing uh, regeneration from sacrifice into source of wealth. And uh, it was a great use of meme. I don't know, Sean, you you probably saw that too, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I, I think Cyrus had a, a really crisp presentation. It was uh, it's pretty engaging and great to see the, the focus on climate and Rarify. Definitely, yeah. Another one, the Render Pub, that's kind of like architecture design metaverse. I can see that being used in a lot of places way more than, you know, just uh, like a, right now used for some metaverse you can use for gaming and uh, in the future can be just a real architecture design. So it's very cool project from uh, Chedro uh, and uh, Rongha. Uh, I hope I pronounced their name right. <laughs> um, yeah, Chedro and Rohan. Yeah, yeah Chedro and Rohan. And uh, another of my favorite one is the research rabbit. Kind of interesting to see how the knowledge graph uh, generated from research paper for scientific use, which is a kind of very interesting way to how people research faster and lower the barrier for people entering the research field. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I think they had some super cool visualizations and I, I can see a lot of collaboration potential with um, our last podcast guest, uh, Matthew. Do I... our, one, our second to last podcast guest, Matthew, who's focused on portal yeah. and uh, tools for thought. So hopefully yeah. there's uh, some collaboration brewing there. Definitely. I, um, yeah. How about your favorites? Yeah, aside from our previous podcast guests, so um, th those are all my favorite projects. <laughs> um, I, I would say the ones that were interesting for day one were Mentaport. I thought that was really cool in terms of AR NFTs that interact with the physical, physical world. Yeah, making um, a like a kind of virtual garden in the real world. It's kind of cool. That, that, was, that was super cool. Um, could see a lot of potential with that. So, solidarity card, um, what Juan and Paulina are working on. I think that's uh, very interesting from an accessibility perspective to create global basic income. Um, even people who engage with this is, have no need to have a crypto wallet or anything like that, which is awesome. And then uh, finally, uh, shout out to MotionDAO. I think it's very cool to bring in kind of movement and, and the dance movement into the tech world. So mm -hmm. I'm excited to see what Marlon's doing on that front. Yeah, I wonder Marlon always participating in that uh, flow, like uh, the the yoga thing with with Anthony. A few times I was with him on there, so yeah, it makes sense. 
how nice yeah yeah I, I i never got a chance to fully participate but i'm, I'm sad i didn't uh yaji i know you attended a lot of gym shows this week i only had a chance to attend one but be curious to hear what's happening on the DeFi front. Sure, yeah, yeah. Not as many Junko this week due to a showcase, but still we have the DeFi 201, uh, which is this week talk about a risk framework uh, with, uh, led by Citric uh, uh, 2. And uh, since you know we have more institution investor come in the DeFi world, the risk assessment is uh, something well, we need to do, but it's just uh, still unclear for most of the people. The part I really like is conversation. You know, we talking about like how do we quantifying the risk? Because once you know what's the risk level you are you are anticipating, it's easier for you to make the decision accordingly. Versus right now, a lot of DeFi projects are like no assessment, a lot has a lack of auditing even. So the user, average user, let alone institutional investor, hard to make the decision on how much they put in or if they should go in because they are risking on behalf of all the other investors. And a uh, very interesting conversation from uh, Cynthia. She saying, you know, now with the institution investor, they have to, they are putting other people's money on for this project. If something going wrong, like this money manager, you know, if the smart contract got hacked, can the people sue the money manager for this? because it's not really his smart contract, but he's investing on behalf of everyone. So things like that become very dicey. And, uh, you know, that's why the risk assessment come in play. And also talking about some KYC pro and con. The part really interesting about the pros for KYC is uh, really how people understanding what your user are. And uh, you can design projects uh, actually more tailored towards uh, the user and uh, the risk level could be lower or higher based on the user's profile. So it's kind of uh, going back, people don't like KYC in a certain way, but uh, this is uh, there are some good things about the, doing your background check as well. Uh, I guess another session with DeFi, we have uh, one more session with the fundamental for tokenomics study just a, a maker DAO case study. And uh, the good news uh, seems that uh, Alice will continue to doing this uh, tokenomics study group after the kernel end. So we still have more time to read a book and talk about this. Uh, so Sean, you went to the scale scalability session, right? This week. Yeah, the scalability was one of the uh, core modules or core uh, sections of the module seven, which was our last module. And um, it was a good discussion overall. We had folks from across the spectrum. We had about 25 uh, folks who attended. It was a great conversation around um, how do we think about scalability and kind of all of its different manifestations. So scalability, we think about scalability in, in terms of blockchains, but also ourselves. So. How do we scale ourselves? And there's an interesting conversation around uh, conversation around identity and anonymity and how that might help scale who you are uh, without having to have a label on, on who you are. You, you can scale your abilities, but um, also talk about shared truths and then kind of the notion of spirituality and how that um, helps really scale a lot of the stories that are critical to Web3 and beyond, so. I wish I can have a multiple clone of myself to do more work for me, but uh, <laughs> didn't happen that way. It's hard, hard. 
uh, maybe maybe Danielle can help out with that. Hello, <laughs> just so yeah. I I know there was there's a few wrap ups on the guilds as well this week, and you uh, yeah do you attend the DeFi guild as well? Yeah, yeah. I think this days I really like a lot of DeFi projects out there. So the DeFi guild this year, this time uh, it was uh, the guest is Alberto Salato. And uh, he's a co-founder uh, and engineering lead at Yield Protocol, and also created one of the first uh, fixed number library uh, libraries utilizing around the space. Also, he was a big contributor to Open Open Zeppelin Alliance uh, Block, uh, Simon Dao, and also he's a judge for uh, Code for Arena, which is a kind of a, like a bounty competition for people doing auditing. It was, uh, he's definitely a hardcore, very popular developer in the space. And uh, he's talking about uh, like, uh, how do we make the best use of uh, auditor? It was, uh, it was a quite interesting talk. I really enjoyed that. The part he said, uh, it was a funny start. He's saying like, uh, how do we make, we don't have to be auditor, but we need to know how to make the most of a top rated auditor so we can all sleep well at night. <laughs> Uh, because auditing is definitely a different type of technique compared with just developing and writing your own code. The good auditor able to find a bug that most of people cannot uh, even see or even don't realize. So the, the practice uh, Alberto uh, give us is just uh, how do we make the best use of those auditors by preparing our code well, answering the questions and doing all the homework. So the auditor can come here and analyze your code more thoroughly and find the bug you know, people normally wouldn't able to find. And uh, so the part, uh, there's another interesting analogy he gave out uh, saying writing the smart contract uh, is more like writing assembly code. Actually, I didn't think about that when I first started doing some solidity right, uh, coding. And then the more I do, I do feel it's like the efficiency, concise, and the clearance is more, way more important than anything else in smart contract. And uh, you're writing way more like assembly code than web or mobile development, which is more like a feature-rich based type of development. And also reducing your read and write to blockchain so you can save gas fees. There's a lot of good practice on there. Another thing is saying before you're doing the auditing, like uh, going through your unit tests, uh, going through your front end developer, because they are the very good at testing the bug, it will save you a lot more hassles and time with auditors. So, and also very importantly, is the engaging and complete documentation. You're writing your story, follow your thought, and the good documentation help people save a lot of time. So the basic uh, kind of good practice in the web tool or also applies in here, but uh, it's, it's just some interesting other features uh, besides that. So uh, yeah, uh, that's- uh, I hope uh, the talk was recorded. I unfortunately could not make it, but it seems like a lot of good content. Yeah, yeah, it is recorded. You can check on, it's not on YouTube, but it's a video. Uh, I think Danny posted on Slack. I think you really should check that out. Huh? Uh, Sean, you went to the, yeah, no, you are the superstar for the token guild this time. You, would you like to talk about the non-style? Oh yeah, well, I, I, I got pulled in to co-host the, the token communities guilds uh, this week and we spoke about non-style. Non-style is a 
a super fascinating project that mixes NFTs and DAOs. It is focused on, Nouns is focused on building the world's largest open source brand mm -hmm. using the principles of CC0, which effectively means nobody owns any of the IP. It was, I uh, had the conversation with Michael and Andy, and I think some of the interesting aspects of Nouns are that they have one of the largest treasuries of any NFT collection, about $75 million. Or yeah, I was eight. pretty amazed by that. Um, in only about eight months of existence, effectively. So they, they do one auction per day. They, I, I wouldn't call them a typical token community in the sense that they're not like, there's no ERC 20 token or the like. So tokenomics is more around the inflationary supply of nouns. But I, I think there's a lot of interesting aspects of them using smart contracts from compound governance, as well as uh, Zora's auction protocol to create the way that they've set up the DAO as well as the NFT auction process. And then Andy went into a bit about that. And then I think there's a lot of interesting applications of the deriv derivatives of nouns. So different projects that have emerged from nouns, mm -hmm. even Bud Light, the brand bought a noun and featured some of the nouns in a Super Bowl commercial relatively discreetly, um, which, I, which I think was, which I think makes it one of the more interesting communities out there, one of the more innovative communities, at least. Uh, so we both did not attend the gaming guild, but Yaji, I think you had some highlights from that. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, Andy is our last guest for the gaming guild, was a uh, kind of a, a lot of more philosophical conversation, kind of how we create a game and uh, how we are trying to learn from the gaming guild, how we learn from all the practice from the last uh, eight weeks in the gaming guild. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I didn't, yeah, I'll go back to watch some of the, some of the recordings on that. One part I kind of uh, like uh, in the end, uh, towards the end of the session later on, Michelle, which is our guest today, uh, send a kind of a video about uh, the egg, which is a kind of cool way to think about how the life cycle going to the end, but it's actually only the beginning of something else. It's just kind of like our kernel project. End of the kernel eight weeks, it's just only the beginning of our adventures and our journeys for friendship and uh, partnerships. So we will tell we will talk about more about Michelle later when he when she get on there on the on the chat. Um, I guess the last thing we have is a fair chat uh, well, this week uh, with uh, with uh, Rachel, John, and Owen, Owen Suin. It was uh, I only went to the first half and uh, really appreciate uh, everyone kind of uh, going through the kernel journey with us and. Uh, we're talking about the gift economy, just uh, I know, a good way to ending the kernel conversation. How about you, Sean? Yeah, I think there's an interesting comment around indigenous communities and how that was a new topic this block and how to bring those conversations in and some of the folks who were involved with that, including Rachel, as well as Renata, um, CC0. I think there was just a general sense of gratitude and an opportunity to thank everyone in the community and especially the stewards for taking us through the eight weeks. So here's a shout out to Vivek, Andy, Aliyah, Sid, Sachin, everyone who really made our 
fellowship a great experience. Hey, Michelle. Yeah, welcome to our podcast, uh, our kind of the last one during KB5. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we were just uh, talking about some the video you sent about the egg, kind of the how we ending the kernel, just the beginning of the journey of uh, yeah. more uh, longer a longer path going forward. And uh, yeah, I saw you were very involved with several NFT project and uh, Archaea DAO. And mm-hmm. uh, would you like to talk about all your projects that you're working on? Yeah, honestly, I probably have too many at this point, but um, I'm more than happy to. Um, I'll first talk about Akia DAO. Um, Akia DAO is a Japanese eco-village project um, that basically a couple of our friends and I were following the Akia situation in Japan for quite some time. And so um, Japan is actually going through a real estate slash housing crisis where there's about 12 million vacant houses that are in the rural side. And by 2030, approximately one third of Japanese homes will actually be empty. Um, And the reason for that is because there's a lot of um, older people that are in the countryside and when they need medical care, they move to urban environments. And then basically like a lot of these houses become abandoned. And so they're kind of just like sitting there and the Japanese government is like, wait, it's just like sitting there. There's no one taking care of it. And there's gonna be also a very large cost in terms of renovating them or refurbishing them or even like destroying them. So like the the land around it can regenerate properly. And so huge stipends, um, even like to expedite the purchase of these houses as cheaply as $500. And you know, we were thinking like, wow, there's a lot of NFT projects that are selling JPEGs for more than $500. Right. Like what happens if you can buy an NFT that allows you to like basically go and live in the, into this home for a certain amount of time um, and be able to share it with others, um, learn about Japanese culture and meet a lot of other cool nomads that are interested in like learning how to home build, learning how to like, you know, live off grid. Um, I think there's been a lot of like call back to nature in that regard. And so we're like, okay, like, let's, let's start fundraising from an NFT. And, you know, of course, like, it's not just like me and my friend, Will, who thought about this project together, like dictating, like who goes where, but we're like, let's turn it into a DAO or a collectivist, uh, a collective action project. Um, So that, that was very much the inspiration behind the idea. And um, now it's, now it's like in the world, which is, which is kind of which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, so that, that's one of my projects. Um, and then very briefly, some of my other projects involve biosensor art, um, as well as sustainable fashion, um, using a NFT like authenticator um, part. So yeah, a couple of broad strokes there. I don't know if we want to dive into any of those or go deeper into it. I, I, I love the, uh, the, new, the new catchphrase you have, everybody asking when token, nobody asking when Japanese eco-village. So. Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are the real questions. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, like, oh, like excitement. And I, and I think I personally am very excited about crypto and Web3, but I think what is really interesting for me is how do we convert all of this connection that we have? You know, we were talking about this at the beginning of the call, connection that we have online and transfer some of that into the physical medium uh, and, right. and kind of like, you know, I think right now there's a lot of digital that isn't able to integrate the somatic part properly. It's like, you kind of like, I don't know if I'm on video for tall, I get like start dissociating. I'm just like talking to the screen. But um, I think that's a lot of like some of my, all of my projects actually focus on like hardware and software integration. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very interested in that bridge. I'm curious what uh, what brought you to Kernel? What, what was your journey here? Yeah, um, honestly, one of my friends did Kernel and um, he's really intentional. I think that 
there's a lot of building, you know, that people are working on in the Web3 space and it's super, super exciting. But I think the cool thing about Kernel is that it focuses on the negative space. So there's a lot of, lot of positive space, which is like, you know, like, let's, let's make something happen. And then the negative space is like, wait, let's take a step back and actually figure out what we want to build and how we can actually make more intentional systems. So I think the cool thing about Kernel, what I've seen is that there's a lot of negative space that allows for that positive space to grow in the right ways and more intentionally. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of those uh, kind of a chatting group or Discord channel like I go to, people asking <laughs> when moon, when token all the time. It's like there's so much of focus on the hype and the short-term stuff. It's yeah. like when you are building something physical, like it will have a long time to take getting the return. Like mm-hmm. a lot of those are called the Web3 community end up just not excited about that. They don't invest in there. They don't really want to get in there too much because they feel like you are not going to make the return anytime soon. That's mm-hmm. the kind of, uh, I feel a lot of struggle with connecting physical space with this Web3 part. Yeah, I'm just wondering. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, do you have any take on like how do you engage with a lot of those social media or community when they ask you things like that? How do you normally approach that? Oh yeah, we, we've gotten a lot of questions actually about that. Like, hey, like how do we measure like returns on the NFT or like how do you hype up the NFT so much that people yeah. actually want to come? And I'm just like, actually our goal is not to like have a, we're not optimizing for liquidity, but we're not optimizing for like the highest amount of NFT sales. The only like we're, the cool thing about having a um, structure like this where like some of the funds come from the NFT to actually build physical things is that if we only get like five NFT sales or 10 NFT sales, we're just gonna buy like one or two houses. Like that's that's cool. Like I think that would be definitely more ideal and definitely more organic than selling like 2000 NFTs and like being like, okay, well, how do we like, you know, take this money and properly to get back into the house. Um, but we're, we're definitely more optimistic for like, hey, like how do we grow using a community first perspective and have it be truly organic um, in the sense that like, yeah, like we, we're thinking of like not even having like a liquidity token, for example. Um, that's been a pretty like high point of debate where we're like, okay, well, liquidity tokens allows for whales and, and, and people that are like, have a lot of crypto capital to actually come in and like purchase these things to um, actually like go into buy the houses. But I think that especially if we entangle like liquidity with governance, for example, um, that becomes really tricky where it's really hard to preserve um, the cultural cohesion within people that don't necessarily have financial access or financial needs. Um, And yeah, I think what you had said around short-term cycles versus long-term generation is especially important um, due to climate and also for eco-villages. And so, you know, like it's a whole bottle of like, um, it's a whole can of worms to to go down the like, okay, well, short-term gains, um, you know, optimizing for short-term profits um, and and not necessarily thinking about long-term consequences. The study of ecology is essentially about the study consequences. And I think that like we as a DAO want to have the essence of feeding back into the long-term and taking things slowly, even if it doesn't necessarily draw in like loads of investment early on. I'm curious how the coordination and logistics layer of this works and will you and Will have to go physically to Japan or you, you can um, yeah, <laughs> we'll be, okay, okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we'll be in Japan. We are currently coordinating with um, a few locals, actually. So one of my friends in Japan, um, she's a local there. She's actually gone through the process of buying an IKEA and um, like purchasing these homes and converting it into like more livable communities. 
and um yeah like she's like yeah like I have the Japanese government on speed dial <laughs> like and in terms of, like um being able to sort out a lot of the logistical things um me and Will have very very limited Japanese language experience and so um we also want to definitely involve the local communities in order to also make sure that we're integrating our culture properly versus just like coming in buying houses and totally siloing ourselves from like the rest of the environment um, we also still want to integrate like with communities um, and, and be like a regenerative effort in that way too. So uh, definitely having locals involved. And yes, we will be going to Japan <laughs> to answer sounds, your question. Sounds exciting. Who's going to be doing all the renovation stuff? Like I guess when you buy the, the old house, normally it's a bunch of those property mm -hmm. management type of work or repair need to be done. Are you also yeah. offsetting that to the local to do that? Um, locals and also people that like, especially for the first couple of cohorts, um, including Will and I, like we'll actually be doing a lot of the construction and renovation ourselves. Um, there's an interesting model, um, especially in hostels where like, for example, people that work in the hostel get like free living situation and free like uh, food situation. And we're thinking about doing something really similarly where like you're effectively like wolfing, but like for a house construction project um, and, and coming together and like say like, hey, like, how do you build, you know, off-grid solar infrastructure? Like Will's working on that in this other company. So I'm like, all right, cool. Like we got that down. Um, how do you build like permaculture? Um, how do you even think about woodworking? Like are all those things necessary or even bringing in local artisans? Um, there's a lot of really uh, highly specialized Japanese artisans that um, have like amazing crafts like for woodworking or for ceramics. And so um, even having like a rotation of these as like a mini construction artist residency type situation, um, whereas like, yes, like you would you would essentially be like living for free um, in the house. So yeah, we're thinking about having that for at least our first couple of cohorts to make the housing project uh, at least come off the ground. I'm curious to learn a bit more about one of the other projects you mentioned um, earlier, mm -hmm. the biosensor project. There's a biosensors yeah. in art. How, how does yeah, that work? Yeah, yeah totally. Um, so basically over the last year, um, I spent a lot of time in Taiwan kind of doing a creative sabbatical. Uh, and there I was experimenting a lot with neurotech, neurosensors. Um, I've been fascinated about how to contribute to consciousness research, psychosomatic research, and um, previously, I'd worked for a healthcare startup that basically integrated data from different wearables. So like from your Oura Ring, from your Apple Watch, and consolidated it into a way that um, you could actually learn some insights about your health. And so um, Neurotech, for example, is a very, very niche, I guess, like industry slash products. Like you don't see people walking around with, like Neurotech devices on, um, although it'd be cool, but it's, it's not yet a fashion statement. It, it, that's one of my like broad spanning like future goals. Uh, mm -hmm. but We'll get to that in a bit. Um, so I started just playing around with a lot of neurotech, um, trying to understand like what my what was the difference between like my brain waves when I meditated uh, or like when I was in flow in projects and I started like collecting a lot of brain data. Um, and then I realized like, hey, well, data visualization is really fun after you get like all these numbers. Like what happens if we're able to integrate a feedback loop between like what happens in your brain and what you're somatically experiencing versus what you're visually experiencing? And so one of my projects, for example, was a LED light cube where I woodcrafted a, a cube from, from wood uh, and I put a bunch of LED strips on it, connected it to an Arduino, 
uh, and essentially, I mean, there's like a longer tech stack there, but essentially like connected it to my neurotech headset. And so when I meditated, this cube would actually start pulsing blue. And so I could see like when I would be in calm states. So I had my headset on when I was like working and I found out like when I was in flow, like the cube would start like pulsing blue. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Or like when I felt like very calm, like I could actually see what content was affecting me. Um, and so that was an interesting way to, I think, learn more about myself from a conscious point of view, like a very obvious visual point of view, um, rather than, you know, like, hey, like, am I, am I calm or not? Or am I meditating or not? Um, and I think it's like an interesting artistic experience as well. Uh, for example, I was working with a uh, sound therapist in Japan. I, I wasn't actually in Japan where I'm at. Um, I couldn't get into Japan, unfortunately, because of visa issues and COVID, uh, long story. But anyways, we were working on an art installation um, that allowed people to essentially put on a neurotech headset grab one of these cubes and undergo one of her sound therapy sessions as they're laying on mats. So you can actually see like how's, how someone's brain was responding as they were listening to the, the session, which is like really cool. Like you're, you're holding your brain, you're holding your mental state. <laughs> in some sort of brain. Yeah, yeah, that's so that, cool. that's a little bit about that. Literally an out-of-body experience, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. exactly, exactly. Have, have you heard of that part of lucid dream? I forgot who's the one presenting that, but in one of the pitch practice, uh, she mm -hmm. talked about like a competitive dream, like uh, making an NFT from using your dreamed art or anything you had in your brain, like while you are dreaming, you had some mm -hmm. like a really interesting hallucination, like kind of hallucination, but like some of those like a really different visual arts you generate at your dream. And then he generally mm -hmm. trying to sell those at NFT. It was a kind of reminder <laughs> of that when you had the- <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually looking into um, biosensor NFTs for a while. Um, I still, I, I feel like there's a lot to figure out in terms of like, hey, how does the data stay in the consumer's wallet? Um, but how do you also make sure that like sensitive healthcare data is not on the blockchain? Mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, like, yeah, just like a lot of like HIPAA stuff too and, and, and a lot of like sensitive information um, with the consumer. But I think eventually it'd be really cool to have data in some way abstracted onto the blockchain. So there's mm -hmm. no way to like, figure out what the raw data is, have the raw data into someone's wallet. And from like a DSI approach, like let's say I'm a research organization or consciousness organization, being able to stake my brainwave data NFT to the organization basically means like, hey, like I consent to this organization using my data and then transferring some like cryptographic key to them so they can actually like be able to use the data. But also, um, you know, like for example, like when you go into uh, sleep labs to you know contribute to neurotech research it's like you go there they do this thing on you and you probably like you don't really have access to the data like it, it just it just stays there so it's like if I see another project like do I have to sleep for like five more days and just like fine yeah. and like be attached to like 96 electrodes like that's yeah. hard you know right. so I think there's a there's a lot there in DSI um I'm I'm very very excited about like healthcare interoperability um, being a thing in, in design in the future. Like I have, I have a lot of thoughts on the healthcare system um, and, and data sovereignty, but uh, I, won't, I won't get into it. <laughs> I'm sure you've spoken with Ali and Chris regarding billions health. Um, yeah, if, yeah. If, if you haven't, but you, yeah. I'm also a former uh, healthcare person, digital health person. So right. uh, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting a, struggle. to think about the possibilities, but it's mm -hmm. very different industries, right? Healthcare is a hugely regulated industry versus Web3, a hugely unregulated mm -hmm. industry. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I would actually say that um, healthcare, like something that I've realized over the years is, um, so I used to work in finance and then I worked in healthcare. And then I realized like, hey, these two industries are actually really, really similar. Um, there's a lot of data. There's a lot of um, information asymmetry. Uh, there's a lot of regulations. And um, there's a lot of just people that like large incumbents in the space that, uh, that, you know, like that influence regulation, et cetera. Um, but the reason why I feel like finance and healthcare are doing completely different things is because healthcare is a lot of like, it is hard to measure returns in healthcare. And if you measure it from the returns of, you know, like capitalistic standpoint, that's kind of like how you get the system that we do now. Yeah. But if you think about like the returns for healthcare, like the best return is that nothing happens, right? To right. the patient. The best return is like, oh, like, like we they never go like, back to hospital. <laughs> they never go back to the hospital. Yeah. And, and for finance, it's very much like the KPI you're measuring for is ROI. So it's a very, very clear financial quantifiable metric. And in healthcare, it's a lot more loose. It's a lot, it's a lot harder to tie associations. And also um, number two, the risk standpoint. So um, especially when someone's health is at risk, you are very, very precautious. It's like if the doctor doesn't prescribe an x-ray and like five other tests that you that are like have like a 10% chance of diagnosing something correct, like they're just going to do it because they want to like save their butt, right? right? For finance, it's like, okay, well, you have money. And if you lose the money, you go to zero. And that's yeah. the worst case outcome. But for healthcare, it's like infinite negative. Like you you opt out of the game of life, essentially. Okay. Um, so it's like risk taking uh, and also like clear KPIs. And I feel like there needs to be a much more decentralized approach to healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and in my point of view, it, it has something to do with like, hey, if consumers own the data, then they feel more responsible for the health because they can easily track it. And then that mm -hmm. allows it to turn into more of a consumer thing versus like, hey, I'm sick. I blame the doctor for these things that I'm not doing in my life. Like a lot of healthcare is preventative uh, and longitudinal. So very cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally agree. We sure we can all see our own health data and then you can understand your own body condition a lot better too. So, mm -hmm. but the, the problem with that, you never go to hospital, you don't need to go to doctor, then they don't make the money. So the yeah, incentive yeah. this part is kind of a misaligned in a certain way. Exactly, exactly. And even from a diagnostics point of view, it's like, okay, like you have your annual preventative health exam that most right. insurance companies, you know, reimburse you for. Yeah. But the rate at which people go to these annual exams is like super low because it's like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm not going to go. Um, and when people actually go to the doctors, um, most of the time they are sick, like there's something wrong with them. So their baseline health in terms of like what like blood pressure that they have or what their glucose is or like any other metrics, like that baseline that the doctors actually collect way, way off. Uh, because you're not actually getting day-to-day -day data from like their their normal living situation and so um if you go to the doctors and you know like there's another problem with interoperability where like if i move doctors like none of my past historical data actually gets yeah. moved and so if you if you go to the doctor and like let's say normally you have a low blood pressure as your baseline and then you go to the doctors and it's suddenly normal the doctor will be like oh yeah you're within the range of a healthy person but for you personally yeah. it's actually very dangerous and so yeah. it's like super lack of context um yeah so diagnostics in healthcare is a is a huge problem yeah for sure yeah a lot, a lot of skewed incentives speaking of yes. incentives again yeah. I, it, I i was curious just to wrap things up if mm -hmm. uh if there's one or two things you would want to ask from colonel fellows to help with Ooh. your projects or the wider community? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if uh, Eco Villages calls to you, uh, definitely join um, our Discord. 
you're going to find our Discord link at akiadao.xyz. Uh, so you can head to that. And yeah, like we're, we're working on some cool stuff. Um, we definitely want to cater to communities that are like nomadic. And I think, you know, a lot of kernel, like especially coming from like, you know, the positive negative space. Um, I think a lot of what I've seen in kernel is that like the community has a lot of heart. It's like a very heart and human driven. And those are exactly like the the values that we want to see it in Ikea DAO as well. Like community first, um, organic and like making sure that long-term ecology effects are are good. Um, but yeah, I mean, the second request is just like, just keep vibing. Like even if none of these projects call to you, like uh, I love the community um, and I, I just like want to say like, thanks for existing. So yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's a great takeaway. Keep vibing. So keep vibing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's it. Just just vibes, man. Yeah. Thank, thank <laughs> you for the time, Michelle. Yeah, thank yeah, you, Michelle. First. Thanks so much. Yeah, for thank on. you. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. all the questions. I know we like went deeper into healthcare territory, but you know, like healthcare is also like, you know, like healing of systems. Um, yeah. and, and in some ways the ecology is too. So um that's kind of how I've been to been able to rationalize my diverse interests. Yeah, and they're totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. It's all good. We we got to cover two major topics. So that that, that was awesome. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, thanks for your time, everyone. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah.